We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Sean Su. It's great to be back. And from Taijong by Donovan Smith. Always great to be on the show. Tonight we'll be discussing Vice President and DPP Chairman Lai Ching-de registering for the party's presidential primary as the KMT is still seeking to determine whether it will be holding a primary. The latest news on the soldier who left his unit in Jingmen last week and was confirmed to be in China this week. The economics minister dismissing talk of power shortages as decommissioning of the number two generator at the second nuclear power plant begins and plans to launch a domestic version of generative artificial intelligence. But we'll begin with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs this week expressing its grave concern to the government of Honduras after the president there announced plans to establish formal diplomatic ties with China. Now, Vice Foreign Minister Alexander Yu summoned Honduras's ambassador to Taiwan to voice that concern in a meeting that lasted around 20 minutes. And speaking very briefly to reporters on leaving the ministry's Taipei headquarters, the Honduran ambassador told them that his office is waiting for further direction. Now, the Foreign Ministry says it's asked Honduras to carefully consider the situation and not fall into a Chinese trap by making a wrong decision that would jeopardise the, well, the decades-long bilateral friendship between Taiwan and Honduras. Now, in Honduras, the foreign minister there told local media that his country's decision to sever diplomatic ties with Taiwan in favour of China is about pragmatism, not ideology. And he went on to stress that his country intends to keep trade ties with the island. So, Sean, Whoops, there goes another one. Maybe, possibly... Maybe, possibly. Uh, Honduras, uh, well, first of all, it's important to say that the president um, of Honduras uh, campaigned uh, partially on uh, recognizing China over Taiwan. But it wasn't exactly ideology, indeed, as they said. It's because... Well, they have a lot of problems. Um, the pandemic didn't help. They had hurricanes. There was the war in Ukraine. They had an inflation reaching almost 10%. They had a poverty rate, which three three quarters of the nation... Uh, you know, is in poverty, which you know they ha- they consistently had huge numbers of of those uh, those. So they're desperate for money, and China's swooping in, promising cash. And uh, I I kind of get it, you know. Um, although that said, last year they did delay this supposed change. We don't know. Uh, so I mean, it, it's it's a you know it's a it's a cash issue, and I do expect uh, the Honduran government to look out for itself first. Um, you know, it's just one of those realities that Taiwan needs to face. So I think the step for Taiwan in the future is to really consider if these allies are actually worth it. Every time something like this happens, people on the Internet debate, is it worth us, uh, you know, paying or giving or, you know, using dollar diplomacy, trying to match China with uh, with these kind of things? Because the reality is some might some are asking, you know, for every million dollars we send to the Honduran, you know, Honduran government uh you know is it better to use that money to buy arms or build defenses and of course sean the country did say that it intends to keep trade ties with taiwan which of course is a bit further than some other countries have gone when they've severed ties with the island 
Uh, yeah, and I think that again, that has to do with the economics of a lot of these nations that have severed ties. Um, you know, their economies tend to be smaller or more specialized in certain ways. So, uh, you know, they can quote unquote afford uh, to not have great trade relations with Taiwan. It's also because you know it's not like the laptops that they need won't be coming in, or the smartphones they need won't be coming in, or the computers they need won't be coming in, and that happens to be Taiwan's forte. So, uh, do I? I you know, I guess it's great that they intend to do that, and that isn't much of a surprise. But yeah, they need to, they need the ties, they need the money, they need the imports. I mean, this is a country that is in economic turmoil and has tried to climb back into a democratic system. Uh, in the past, the United States has called it a narco state. Uh, you know, and they recently signed a, a, a sort of agreement or whatnot, having allowing the United Nations or some organization in there to allow them to handle judicial cases due to mass corruption within the country. So I don't admire the tough decisions um, that their liberal liberal president has to go through because uh, she has a lot of issues that she has to try to solve within her country. And if China's going to offer quick money, she might have to bite the bullet and do it. And Donovan, I'm of course the Ministry of Foreign Affairs here, warning that Honduras could fall into a Chinese trap. Yes, I think the way they phrased it was, quench your thirst with poison, and I believe accused China of making false promises. And so I think that was a, a kind of a colorful way of phrasing it. Uh, and, but the thing is that, that they're right. I mean, if you look at a lot of cases where China has made promises to countries, you'll see that they often don't live up to the promises. And so I think that actually the Taiwan's foreign ministry's uh, warning is, you know, legitimate. I mean, for example, you know, previously the 17 plus one in Eastern Europe, where China was the plus one, and then they were trying to get a grouping of Eastern European countries to uh, form kind of a, a grouping has now dropped to, uh, I believe it's now 14 plus one, and it looks like it might be 13 plus one soon. And a lot of that is on uh, is based on two things. One is a lot of uh, Eastern European countries like Lithuania and, and Czechia, you know, they remember Soviet domination, and they, they're looking at Russian aggression, and they're looking at China and realizing that Taiwan is very in, in a very similar situation. But on the other hand, China didn't live up to barely any of the promises it made in terms of investment in Eastern Europe. And so, you know, they're losing support there. So I think that's a, you know, I think the Taiwan's foreign ministry kind of hit the nail on the head there. Now, I mean, there were reports which have been disputed by local foreign ministry that Honduras was asking foreign aid from Taiwan to be doubled from 50, uh, 50, uh, 50 million, 50 billion, uh, 50 million uh, to 100 million annually, and also some restructuring or helping out with huge uh, outstanding national debt that Honduras has. So, you know, as Sean noted, yeah, they have some financial issues and debt issues that they needed to deal with, and they were hoping to get Taiwan to, to uh, solve these. But of course, Taiwan's foreign ministry said, "Look, you know, we're just not going to try and outcompete China on money, because you know Taiwan really can't afford it." So, as Sean pointed out, Honduras, you know, may need to look at what their own self-interests are, but Taiwan does as well. 
Um, and then Sean also raised a good question: Is you know how valuable are you know is Honduras as a, you know as a country that diplomatically recognizes Taiwan? And obviously, it has some value, but is it worth a hundred million U.S. dollars annually? You know, that's a big question. Now, of course, everyone's eyes now that the you know after this last campaign and the you know the candidate who did support. Uh, shifting ties to China won the election. Now all eyes, of course, are going to be moved to Paraguay, which also has an election coming up, and the opposition candidate has also said similar things. So Paraguay might be coming up, uh, you know, depending on the results of the upcoming election, Paraguay may follow suit sometime in the next year or so. And moving on now, and Vice President and DPP Chair Lai ching registered for the party's presidential primary on Wednesday. He was accompanied to the party's Taipei headquarters by former Pingdong County Magistrate Pan Meng An, who has been tipped to be appointed to head Lai's election campaign team. Now, speaking to reporters after registering, Lai said that he's extremely determined to run for the presidency on the DPP ticket and will strive to ensure Taiwan's security in the face of increasing Chinese threats. He went on to say that he will work to bring the nation's people together to grow the economy, to safeguard democracy, to strengthen national defence and ensure peace in Taiwan. And he finished by saying, together we can make Taiwan the MVP of the democratic world. Now, Taiwan People's Party Chairman Kerwin Zhe and New Party co-founder Wang Jianxuan have previously announced their intention to run for the presidency in 2024. The KMT's Zhang Yajong has announced his intention to run, but the party has yet to decide whether it will hold a presidential primary or conscript a candidate to run. Now, recent media reports have been linking new Taipei Mayor Ho Yoi, Honohai founder Terry Guo, and KMT chairman Eric Ju as being possible KMT presidential candidates. Ju has been talking up by saying to every media that asks him, he plans to pick the strongest candidate in countless news reports, some of which have been saying that he may not run. And Ho Yoi's name is still very high on pundits' lists of possible candidates, but it appears he's not too happy with the KMT's central election strategy report, which this week included the names of several party members of either previous convictions for corruption or have been linked to corruption cases. Now, turning to Facebook this week, Ho slammed their inclusion in the KMT's plans for the upcoming election, saying that black gold has no place in any political party. Ho himself, though, has also had his name dragged through the proverbial mud recently, as former KMT and People First Party lawmaker Choi slammed Ho as the possible 2024 choice, saying that he has little knowledge of international and cross-strait affairs, and his nomination could divide and cause a revolution within the party, Donovan. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um... Yeah, and there's been a term I've noticed that's been thrown around a, a fair bit recently, um, specifically, you know, referring to Ho, is that there's concerns in the deeper blue end of the party that he has blue skin and green bones. In other words, they think he is secretly a DPP supporter or pro-independent supporter, um, but is masquerading as a KMT supporter. And also, there's uh, also talk of him being a Li Donghui 2.0. So there's a lot of those concerns in the deeper blue end of the KMT. The, the reality is, actually, no one really knows what, what his stands are. And Cho actually kind of has a point there, in that he speaks so rarely on 
substantive issues related to, say, China or foreign affairs, or he just speaks in, in vague platitudes. And when he's questioned on almost every major issue that is not not that is outside of the purview of the mayor of New Taipei City, he usually he just gives the answer of, "Oh, you know, I, I'm just doing my job as Ta- New Taipei mayor," and dro- and leaves it at that. He, he you know he he almost never addresses these other issues. However, every once in a while, he will buck the party and come out with a strongly worded statement. Now, he came out with what I termed as manifesto uh, during the the four referendum items when he bucked the party and flat-out called for voters to make up their own minds and to examine the issues on their own, which flew completely in the face of the party line. Now, in this case, he came out with, and this was, you know, on that, on the, uh, you know, on the election committee from the KMT, which had two convicted criminals on it. And, of course, he once again came out and bucked the party, saying specifically, no matter what the political party, black gold has, uh, you know, absolutely cannot return to power. And, again, that that's a big, uh, you know, he's spitting in the face of the party. And this is all the more remarkable because he was originally the protege of Eric Jew, who, of course, is the KMT chair now. It was Eric Chu that appointed him as one of his deputy mayors in New Taipei City, and when he stepped down to run for president, uh, temporarily he appointed him as deputy mayor, and then later supported Ho to run and become the actual mayor of New Taipei City. So there's a lot going on there. Now, as far as the other candidates, um, Eric Jew has polled himself... um, he said internal party polling will no longer include his name. Now, we all know that Eric Jew wants to run for president, because he did before, and we know he's very ambitious, but polling has shown him in a three-way race, if he's the KMT candidate, coming in third behind uh, Lai Qingda and Ke Wenzhe. So he may have read the writing on the wall, and he keeps going out and saying, well, I will... I, I'm not going to. Cons- I'm, I'm going to be selfless in doing the job in choosing the candidate for president. So that brings on to, as you noted, what is going to be the method. Now, what's interesting about one of the interesting things about ta- Taiwan politics is that choosing how a primary is conducted is one of the strategic considerations. So, and they might even do it different ways for different races. So, for example. In the last nine and one elections, they actually held a public opinion polling primary for a couple of races, both the DPP and the KMT for one race specifically uh, on both sides. But the rest of them, the party chair and the election committee, effectively just chose the candidate. So if he goes, if Eric Drew goes with just choosing the candidate then that's going to create a ruckus within the party, and he's going to be called undemocratic. But what it also means is that there, it, it avoids a, an ugly primary fight where you have two you know, different candidates in the party attacking each other in the press and then dragging each other down in the, in the mud so the, the eventual candidate becomes tarnished. Um, 
So, you know, it's, it's a tricky choice. Now, the, you know, the candidates that have on the KMT side that have declared right now, Zhang Yajong and Zhao Shaokang, are both very deep blue ideologues, and neither of them, I think, would be considered a very appealing candidate by Eric Zhu or the voting public. Now, Eric Jew, during the 9-1 elections, made a point of choosing candidates who were not on the deep blue end of the spectrum, at least not publicly. And that is because they're more electable. And everybody knows at this point, you know, looking at all the opinion polling, that Hoyoe is by far the most popular candidate on the KMT side. Second would be Terry Goh. And he isn't even a party member, and Eric Chu is still deliberating on whether or not to allow him back in the party. So he's going to also have to make a strategic decision there, because if he lets him back in the party, and like in the last election, actually waives the requirement to be a party member for a year, which they did in the primaries in the last, uh, last election, then he would enter the primaries, and then again you have ugly internal fighting. So Eric Jew's got a lot of strategic choices that he's going to have to make. Now, on the DPP side, there was an interesting report, and I only saw it in one news outlet, uh, the revived Next Apple, that stated that there is another candidate besides Lai Qingde who has registered to run uh, in the presidential primary on the DPP side. Now, because it's only one outlet, I'm kind of viewing this as if, a big if at this point. Um, but the name is being withheld if this report is accurate. And we won't know until uh, presumably Friday evening or tonight. Um, but we're, we're recording this earlier. Um, or tomorrow uh, when they'll release that name. Uh, if this does, uh, if this is indeed an accurate report, I'd be very curious to see who's going to challenge uh, Lai Qingde on the DPP side because he looks all but unbeatable in the DPP primary. And of course, Sean, now looking at the DPP, I mean, obviously, no big surprise that Lai Qingde registered there. Yeah, of course not. Um, Lai is actually by far the most uh, popular uh, of the DPP primary candidates. Uh, there's just no competition on that front, uh, pretty much. Uh, so yeah, Donovan mentioning that mystery, other potential, uh, uh, you know, running in person and running. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see who they are. But I, you know, the polls have shown repeatedly that on the pan green side, among the major candidates, uh, Lai Qingde is very popular. Now that's a little different, I think, from like satisfaction ratings. Um, in throughout Taiwan, Hoyo Yi of the KMT has a huge amount of satisfaction rating. He's also the only politician right now with whom a majority of supporters from all parties appear to be satisfied with, which I think is a very big critical thing, right? Um, so Ho, I think, is being very strategic. Like things he said yesterday, you know, by by saying that oh, you know, the KMT has no space for a com- uh, 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 you know black gold or corruption and that kind of stuff. Um, only makes 
his appeal higher, um, you know, across parties, especially among you know people who don't necessarily identify with you know either being pan green or pan blue, or who are very not you know or might be light blue or light green. The downside, though, is of course I think that may have dinged his satisfaction ratings among the radical pan blues, and that's why I think uh, you know a month or two ago uh, polls, especially the one from Z Media. Uh, showed that Lai was favored by almost 40% of voters, followed by Ho at 27.8. And if Ho were to try to gain back those uh, diehard KMT, uh, he would have to make very concrete statements about uh, very political uh, views that might appeal to them, but then that would start to remove Ho's edge. And that's why he's kind of in a difficult position where he has to kind of coast to the finish line by not being too extreme yet appeasing his own voters. Um, I, I recall in past elections there were several times where the KMT tried to navigate this by telling voters that oh no you know for example Mind Joe right now he's having a more moderate tone but it's because you know he needs to appeal to more voters but trust me he is very much you know for our ideology things like that can be navigated by the KMT given how it's structured uh, do I think uh, so I think Lai will be Lai if it was a matchup between Ho and Lai it's going to be a very interesting time. But if Ho doesn't run, uh, then, you know, then then actually I think Lai is going to probably win. But if Ho runs because how he hasn't needed to be very specific and how he can probably navigate being vague, then, you know, his positions are up to the imagination of the voter. Uh, and, you know, if people who like him or, or, or like some of his policies will tend to gravitate, I think, towards, you know, Ho being on their side. So at that point, Ho might, might actually be able to topple Lai. So we'll see. And we have to leave it now on Taiwan this week for a brief advertisement break, but we will return after these rather important messages. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week and the Mainland Affairs Council on Monday confirmed that a professional soldier who went missing from his base in Jingmen County last week is in China. Now, according to Council Minister Cho Tai-san, his office was notified of the soldier's whereabouts by Chinese authorities who are in the process of having him returned to Taiwan. Cho says Taiwan will follow similar procedures for returning Chinese nationals found illegally entering Taiwan, a mechanism that has long been used as emergency responses for fighting crime. Now, Defence Minister Cho Guo Chung says the return to Taiwan of the soldier from China will be overseen by relevant government agencies and not handled through military channels. And speaking prior to a legislative hearing, the defence minister said that his office certainly hopes to bring the soldier back home and is pursuing alternative channels. However, he didn't elaborate on what channels those were. Cho did, though, deny what he called rumours that the soldier had fled from abusive treatment from the military here. The defence minister was also asked, though, whether there was any risk the missing soldier could disclose classified military deployment and location information about troop deployments on Jingmen. And the defence minister answered that by saying regardless of whether he has any such capability, which we neither confirm nor deny, we would not need to make any large-scale strategic adjustments to mitigate any information provided by this one individual so sean he went to china for reasons we don't know no doubt we will know quite shortly or whenever he returns 
Well, I think since we're speculating so much right now, we probably could look at past instances. And, you know, I mean, politics is probably one of the most common, and the other one is also because of money prospects, right? So, uh, and, you know, then there, the last one would be perhaps he was already a, defect, a spy or something. But I, I'm not really sure if he was originally a spy. Can coercion and blackmail be part of that thing? Um, there's no evidence for that. There has already been rumors about financial reasons where he was, uh, you know, fleeing debt and hoping to flee to China where, you know, his past won't be able to catch up to him. And that is quite a possibility. Who knows, right? Uh, and, and, you know, as the details come out. Now, the question is, I think the biggest question on most people's minds is, can he really release information to China that China doesn't already know? That I am a little bit skeptical about. The reason is because there have been many Chinese tourists that visit Jinmen, and they have a lot more sources. Uh, just uh, you know, a couple of weeks or months ago, we had the whole con- controversy uh, when I think a Japanese paper uh, accused a lot of uh, Taiwanese generals of selling information, retired generals specifically of the of the older generation selling information to China. So I I, I can't see the soldier really releasing any. Any sort of top secret info, um, but I would un- understand why the Taiwanese government would definitely not want to confirm or deny uh, any of this because it, it would it would in a way kind of be used to China's advantage, especially if China did have some sort of tidbit, they might just attribute it to the soldier. So better to not you know steer away from problems that way. Uh, but yeah, generally we won't know until more details come out and we find out more about uh, the soldier's background. And of course, Donovan, I mean, is the soldiers coming back to Taiwan, do you think, up to the soldier? Or do you think China will just simply want to get rid of him? I have no idea. Um, You know, this whole case is, you know, all all I have is questions. You know, I have zero answers. And in fact, I I feel like it's such a, uh, because there's so many questions, there's almost nothing to, to be able to speculate on. I mean, there are definitely cases where, um, you know, China has cooperated, like recently they sent two um, fugitives uh, involved in the so-called 8-8 shooting case from China. On the other hand, um, you know, when a, a Taiwanese pilot, you know, defected to China with a fighter jet back in the day, you know, they they, they kept him. Um, so, you know, how they'll respond in this particular case, I really just don't know because there's precedents going both ways on that. As far as his motivations, apparently he had, there were no known relationship or financial issues. So, I mean, you know, Sean had some possible reasons why he might have done it. Uh, but, you know, they're just so far, I haven't seen anything reported that gives any indication of what, of what it was that he was doing. So we don't know what China's going to do. We don't know, you know, why he did it. Um, maybe he was just having a bad hair day. I, you know, who knows? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it could be. I mean, the, the last case I remember was like a Zhang I think it's up from the top of my head. I can't remember his full name exactly. But in April uh, 2017, a, a former Taiwanese soldier defected to China. And he went there as a tourist, of course. A much easier way to do it than swimming across. And he said he didn't like the Taiwan government. He thought, you know, cross-strait relations could have been better, blah, blah, blah. And he wanted better opportunities there. But 
in in less than a few months later, he came back the same year because he said, you know, all the surveillance from the Chinese government and them asking questions to reveal and blah, 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 that kind of interrogation stuff was too much for him. So we'll find out. Uh, we'll definitely find out what happens as time passes. Um, and yeah, I'd like to point out that, yes, the, the financial thing was just a rumor. We don't know if it's true or not. Uh, it, it does not appear. But who knows? Maybe he made a big gambling thing. You know, it's all speculation right now. We don't know. <laughs> and moving on now to something that's not speculation, because a government minister has confirmed it, that being the National Science and Technology Council announcing this week that it's working to launch a domestic version of generative artificial intelligence in the form of a shared model by the end of this year. Now, according to Council Minister Wu Zhengzhong, unlike a comprehensive system similar to ChatGPT, Taiwan's model will be developed to target special areas such as finance, confidential government data processing, etc. Now, the minister says the decision to develop an indigenous system was made due to the limited budget for technology development. Now, that annual budget stands at 132.7 billion NT, which reports say, and it's quite obvious, is far less than the 10 billion US dollars that the American Artificial Intelligence Research Laboratory OpenAI has already invested in the field. Now the council says it's now collaborating with local experts and businesses to build up and edit a mega database. But, and it, it says it also will be looking for international support to complete the advanced artificial intelligence system. So Sean, you can use a computer and you're a techie dude, so what's all this stuff about artificial intelligence Intelligence and how is Taiwan's going to be differing from everybody else's, albeit a lot cheaper? Because that's, of course, going to be cheaper. Well, I mean, if you're going to, uh, if your parameters are going to be far more specialized, then you don't need to spend nearly as much money. Uh, OpenAI's difficulty and challenge is that. Uh, ChatGPT and GPT-3 or 4 are, are basically engines designed to cover, or predictive language models designed to cover everything and anything, right? So perhaps you can ask it, all right, can you show me a chart, or could you tell me about the history of something, or could you change my words to sound like, um, you know, a fame, like Justin Bieber wrote it, or some pop star. Whereas for industrial purposes, uh, you know, the, the purposes are very different. Like, you might have it sweep just look at good code and bad code. Uh, you might use it to find some sort of defect in certain designs, right? In that aspect, the costs for developing the parameters you need are far less. So is it possible for them to develop it for, you know, you know, a billion dollars? Yeah, I think there's plenty of funds to do that. The reason I also say that is because there's a lot of generative language models out there. And, you know, like Facebook has Llama, some of them are open or not. And it's how many parameters you want to program into it. And some of them use a lot of processing power, like ChatGPT uses a ton of processing power. They have all these, um, they have huge data centers and approximately, uh, uh, some people have predicted that they spend about $600,000 a day just to you know run their services uh that sounds like a huge amount of money because you have all these you know like a100 uh, uh, uh nvidia uh, uh units to calculate all this stuff to you know but they won't need that uh facebook meta is a good example their model using llama can be powered as you know something as simple as a pixel 6 a smartphone 
Uh, will it be as powerful? No, but will it still do its purposes? Yeah. Uh, and I do think that Taiwan should spearhead and actually put more money into these projects. Uh, the reason being because, yes, ChatGPT is a lot of fun, but industrial purposes are far more specialized. It doesn't need to be able to you know, change, for example, um, industrial blueprints, back-end chip designs, or things like that into you know, a Justin Bieber song or Snoop Dogg or whatever. What it needs to do is just, you know, to find specific problems or help generate, uh, you know, these kind of things faster. And that's it. It's very, very doable, I think, um, especially because it's developing so fast that I think the pricing and the, the, the amount of money involved in these things uh, have also dropped significantly in the last few months. Uh, that in and of itself is also very important. And finally, uh, most importantly, they are not competing with OpenAI. OpenAI has so much backing and money from uh, uh, you know Microsoft and other companies that it does not have to charge much, if any, amount of money for a long time coming. So the bigger question then becomes, um, what are the other industrial players in this? Well, because Taiwan's building its own localized one, it doesn't really have to compete, and that's okay. As for if, it, if today the headlines were instead that the Taiwan government wanted to create its own chat GPT, then I would say, good luck, it's probably not going to happen. But that's not what we're looking at here. So um, I think they should be able to pull it off. Any time frame, though, Sean? I mean, that was six months, one year? Uh, given, uh, given a lot of the, I would say, like AI engines that we have right now, it could be as little as three months. And would it, I mean, would the public, Joe Public, want to use it, or do you think it'd be no? These are these are definitely specialized. Specialized. These are definitely going to be specialized tools. Uh, ChatGPT and engines like that, like DaVinci Text, are aimed at not. I would say not necessarily the general public. ChatGPT is, but DaVinci Text just has a few more knobs and options on that. However. Um, these tools will be very, very industry specific. So you, you won't, I, w- it would, uh, I would put an analogy, like think of it as uh, ChatGPT as a general screwdriver, power drill, you know, uh, whereas these tools will be very, very special things you've never seen and could probably normally operate. And before we go this week, Economics Minister Wang Meihua was busy this week reiterating the government line, or possibly hopes, that there won't be any power shortage problems after the second nuclear power plant's number two reactor is fully decommissioned. That that statement came as the decommissioning of the number two generator at the plant in New Taipei began on Tuesday. That on the expiration of its 40-year operating permit. Now on Monday, Wang said the government has no plans to extend the service of the second nuclear power plant as the spent fuel rods at the plant are and no new storage facilities are available, making it impossible to continue to generate power there. Now, according to the economics minister, new natural gas generators plus renewable energy output from solar, wind and hydropower generation will help ensure the stability of future power supplies. Now, a new natural gas generating unit is set to come online this summer with an installed capacity of 1,300 megabytes. And the economics minister stressed that that installed capacity is greater than the 985 megabytes megawatt nuclear power reactor being decommissioned at the second nuclear power plant. But of course, Donovan, um, certain aspects of the media have been screaming, we can expect blackouts. Yes, and they will happen. Um, but there's two, two separate issues going on. The reason why we'll definitely see more blackouts is because of incompetence at Thai power. 
Um, you'll notice that, you know, there have been, since, you know, under the Tsai administration, there have been uh, a lot of blackouts. And in every case, the grid was not maxed out, but it was under stress, and then there was human error. And something, you know, some part of the, uh, you know, of the power grid would go out. You know, for example, one guy just like physically bumped into a button, um, you know, things like that. And so um, then that ha- caused a ripple effect through the entire system because the grid is just simply not very well designed. And the staff at Thai Power overworked and stressed and I would argue probably not terribly professionally run or managed. Now, the other big worry, which hasn't actually happened so far, is that quite simply the grid just simply runs out of power. I mean, that the power demand exceeds the grid capacity. Now, that has not happened yet, and... You know, the Tsai administration has been repeatedly claimed, repeatedly claiming that yes, we you know we have enough capacity in the grid to handle everything, and that has been true so far. The problem is, is you've got a lot of new capacity demands coming online from particularly you know semiconductor fabs and so on in the in the science parks which are really going to stress uh, the grid significantly because their power needs and the growth of their power needs has far exceeded what was originally predicted back when energy targets were set back in, I believe, it was 2016. So that's a big worry. So, Sean, more woes about energy shortages and power shortages and Donovan saying there, well, there will be blackouts. Well, they are upgrading the power grid, and so I do think that that is. They may be less problems. Maybe AI will help manage it better than the humans, right? In this aspect, because yeah, definitely, there's been uh, every single as- uh, every single case in recent years has been human error. Uh, it's also been pointed out. I'm going to point it out again. Uh, you know, nuclear plant two just simply cannot be run further. It's there's just no space. The way they're designed, you just can't have it running further. So that's moot. Which is why I think that part is really political noise, rather than true focus on trying to help Taiwan's energy problem. You know, saying oh we shouldn't shut down a power plant that literally cannot continue running is moot, right? Uh, at the same time. Uh, uh, we have to talk about maybe the horizon. Uh, Taiwan has been building a lot of LNG plants. There has been technology that's just arrived that possibly could convert some of these liquid natural gas uh, power plants into, uh, uh, you know, into a, a nuclear, actually. And the, the fascinating part is, yeah, maybe one day far into the future, they can do that. And nuclear, uh, aside from the waste from the day to day, does provide much more cleaner power power than, you know, natural gas. Now, here's also another thing. A lot of these natural gas plants are so big and they're so fast to deploy, they actually produce, you know, nearly as much energy as these nuclear plants. It's not like SimCity 2000, where a nuclear plant produces many times more power than gas or coal. Um, Not really. That's not been the case. The technology has changed. So I do feel among the populace, there's a lot of misunderstanding. And then finally, there's another thing that I think might be very exciting down the future, which is I think 
in Taiwan, a lot of people are well. People in the industry are looking at small modular reactors, which is a thing overseas. Why? Because um, small rac- new, uh, small modular reactors have a practically perfect history. They're much more simpler. They are they could be shipped on a container. And they could be assembled rather all over. You'll need a lot more of these, but they're self-contained. They could shut down by themselves. There's no possibility of a meltdown or anything like that that will harm, you know, uh, uh, easily the environment unless something ultra catastrophic happens. And they have a lot less worker error problems, you know, regarding them. That Taiwan could possibly deploy too. Uh, all in all, though. Taiwan does have more capacity. Again, Taiwan is upgrading their grid. So, do I think blackouts will continue to happen? Yeah, absolutely, because Thai power, uh, you know, these grids are complicated, and Thai power does need to up its training and what have you. Human error is going to be the continual problem. Uh, capacity, we actually have more capacity than before. That's a whole other thing, like Donovan said. So, and we're constantly building them at a rapid rate. Taiwan is one of the largest markets uh, for energy in Asia right now. Um, so, uh, it's it's not going to be that. Oh, one tidbit I should add though. Um, yes, as t- companies like TSMC, they upgrade their technologies. They they upgrade to like three nanometer, two nanometer processes. They actually do use a lot more energy. Yeah, as technology refines, as more people want, you know, that's the cost. There will be more energy usage, but Taiwan is aiming to meet those energy needs. And that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Sean Su. It was so great to be back. And from Taijong by Donovan Smith. Yeah, great to be back. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.